but yeah, this essay's been kicking my ass. Mm-hmm. I haven't enjoyed this course I've been doing at all. Oh, hello. Mini eggs. Mini eggs? Yeah, there are three left. Oh, my goodness. I don't like mini eggs very much, but we, I noticed we've That's got... That's all right. I'll have yours. Unanswered. Do you ever listen to um, a... There's this podcast that I really like called uh, The Moth Podcast. Uh, I haven't heard of it, actually. I haven't come across that. It is very good. What it is, I think it started in New York, I'm not sure, but it's based around it's based around a kind of a live show thing where it's like an open mic, and uh, the point of it, I don't know why it's called The Moth, uh, the way it works is people turn up and they go up on stage and they uh, tell a story, and the rules are they're not allowed to have any notes so that they have to tell the story like from memory and i believe i don't know exactly what the criteria is but i believe it has to be a story about them about something that actually happened they they can't just make something up um, and these these events are, are normally themed and the the stories are always very they're very warm and rounded and 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 quite quite often they're about something funny sad that the person went through uh, some uh, some uh, event that happened to them but that they can um, draw some humour and deeper meaning from. Mm. It's in, it's very interesting for me listening to it because on the one hand, I've always thought that, that I I hate doing presentations and I, I kind of, as difficult as this might be for many people who have ever met me or, or heard me on a podcast, <laughs> I, actually, I actually find the idea of being uh, on a stage in front of people and having to remember stuff to say quite terrifying. But at the same time, the, the the moth seems like something that should be well within my abilities. If they came to Southampton, if they did a show in Southampton, uh, which is where we are, I don't know if you realise that, it, it would seem strange if someone who writes stories online, who has set up a writing website and who podcasts a couple of times a week, approximately, uh, didn't turn up and make a fool of themselves up on the stage. Um, <clears throat> but alongside the whole performance element of it, which, you know, doesn't doesn't really sit right with me, one of the things I've really realised is, uh, despite the fact that I can happily talk about myself to people for, I was going to say hours, but but there are probably times in the past when I've... I've done it for days, actually. <laughs> so if if a 24-hour period that crosses over that sort of nebulous, d- the, is it the next day, is it not, then strictly speaking, yeah, days probably, mm. um, I can talk about myself, but I don't really have stories at all. It's, it, it's strange because I'm 40 this year and I've been racking my brains over the last few weeks to try and think about it. And I've managed to uh, work out that... Although I can talk about things that have happened to me, you know, just things that happened, like I took a bus or a girl uh, made out with me in a a nightclub or something like that. There are very few actual stories, proper narratives that have kind of I know where the beginning of the story is and there's a natural end to the story. And I can and it's and it's fascinating. I, I know it's fascinating. Um, it's not just me literally brain splurging things, <laughs> memories as they occur to me. And so I've got these five stories. The problem is they're still not moth worthy. They're funny, but only if you already kind of know me. Right. Yeah. 
Shall I, can I tell you one? I'm, I'm going to tell you one. Okay, go this for is it. One, I, I can't actually believe I've, I've never told you this. Um, I'm telling you this because it's, um, it's my wife's favourite story about me. It's her favourite Nick story. I think it might also be her family's favourite Nick story. And this will uh, tell you something about the dynamic there. Right. So, <laughs> okay. It's not a very long story, so don't worry. I don't like llamas very much. And people always find this strange because most people don't even really, can't even really identify what a llama is. And when people ask me why I don't like llamas, um, I have to explain to them that one of uh, the earliest things I can remember is being a... Uh, very small because uh, I'm not very tall now, but I was always a very, very small child up until about the age of 14. I was uh, unusually small in my age group. And so I, I believe we, the family went for an outing, maybe to uh, a whipsnade zoo or somewhere, a petting zoo, sure. or, or a zoo that had a petting area to it. And I was, I was smaller than all of the other kids I knew there and than all of the other kids who were around. So I couldn't really reach to pet most of the animals. The, the gates were too high because normally the animals are in little enclosures and the gates were quite, the fences around them were quite high for a really, really small child. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I, I remember that even back then I had like quite long, longish, curly, curly black hair. You know how, how parents tend to let their kids' hair grow quite long when they're little because it's quite cute? And I had little curly hair, so it was it was pretty cute and stuff. The, my only real memory of I can't remember seeing any other animals. I just remember that there were a bunch of kids around this uh, enclosure where the llamas were. And the llamas are kind of... If you only had the head of a llama, you know, the, the severed head of a llama, they kind of look a bit like camels, I suppose. Um, but then they look like kind of ugly, distorted horses or, or <laughs> three donkeys stuck in a sack. Um, I don't know. But um, it's possible my memory of them is distorted. But I went over to try and uh, to, to try and see if I could get close to this llama. And all I can really remember is in the bustle of all of these children, I can remember that, that through this gap in the children, because I couldn't really get up there to, to touch the llama, through this gap in the children, uh, this llama singled me out maybe it thought it was being friendly i don't know but it just it just descended on me mm -hmm. and um they're kind of known for spitting they chew a lot llamas do they've got very strong uh, teeth it grabbed me by the hair and uh, the curly black hair this is the memory i, I mean i don't know I, I was very young so but nobody's uh, nobody who was around has ever sort of discounted this story okay grabbed me by the hair and lifted me up off the ground by my hair oh jesus because you know kids are quite resilient um and it must have only happened this must have all happened over the course of a few seconds i don't know uh, all i know is that adults had to come and kind of retrieve me from this llama where i was dangling and so that's why i don't like llamas that's it. That is the story. But there's a very clear narrative there, isn't there? There's a beginning. I'm a small child at a petting zoo. Yeah. Uh, there's a middle. I want to say hello to a llama. And there's an end. I have to be rescued from the jaws of a llama. So your lasting memory is being lifted off the ground by your hair via the method of llama. Yes. But you don't remember much after that. You remember that you were rescued. Do you remember your emotional state? Were people making a fuss over you? I, I don't. I think the real definitive 
the moment that really stuck in my head was the bit where I was being assaulted by an animal several <laughs> times my size. Um, I'm sure the adults were very comforting in my head because of the relationships I, I had with a lot of a lot of uh, the adults in my family uh, during my teens. Yeah. I've probably kind of changed it so that, so that yeah, they dragged the llama off me, but they were all like, ha, ah, stupid, you went too close to it, ha, ha, you're a little idiot though, aren't you? All of that stuff. But actually they were probably quite concerned and, and, and comforted me. It's only as I describe the story while I'm in a room on my own with a microphone, sorry to break the podcasting magic there, that it strikes me quite how unreal it sounds. It doesn't sound like it'd be possible. So I must only have been in the air for a fraction of a second. I maybe wasn't even off the air, off the ground properly. I guess when you're thinking about the story now, you remember the beats, but you don't necessarily remember the detail, right? So yeah. uh, possibly through uh, the imagination of your childhood, plus the um, incessant march of time, that llama probably lifted you uh, full four feet off the ground. Yeah. yeah. Oh, when it sure. could have actually only been like an inch. Yeah, well, I might, my feet, my toes might still have been on the ground for all I know. I don't. You might, especially when you're a kid as well, it's kind of any sort of movement like that. It's like, whoa, I'm really high up. Especially if you're a pretty, like, tiny kid as well. I think I was pocket-sized, probably. Oh, so, no. yeah. Well, not actually pocket-sized, that's just stupid. Depends I on could, the size could, of the pocket, I though. Been, could I? No, I mean, yeah, no, yeah, you're right. I think in um, Pete Mayhew's pocket. Mm-hmm. I think Chewbacca actually had those those little pouches, didn't he, on his... He had, like, a band... Not a bandana, a, a scarf thing around him that had pouches. And, yeah, I could probably fit in one of those back then. Not so much now. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, you, you can boil that story down to what I probably actually remember. When I was very small, I got attacked by a llama <laughs> <laughs> that, that, cho- that chose to attack me by grabbing me by the hair. That might literally be the only bit that, is a, that really happened. And everything else is just the, uh, the, the story that I've told myself I, I, over and over since then. But um, Do you find that hard to believe now when you think about it? I, I really didn't until telling you that it just then. The, the thing that's worth bearing in mind is because of the nature of the people who know me. Yeah. And this doesn't necessarily reflect on them. It might just be that I am that annoying socially that people quite like a story where things like this happen to me. But their reaction doesn't tend to be one of disbelief. It's more one of um, hilarity and amusement. Hence the fact that my my wife doesn't like the story because it makes her think of a time when I was this small, cute, vulnerable thing who needed looking after. She uh, she It's her favourite story because she thinks it's funny. And because I love her so much, just the memory of seeing her laughing at me the way she does when I tell that story has made me so smiley and happy. That's got to be love, hasn't it? I guess so. It's quite sadomasochistic, though, isn't it? That's I, I don't really know what it's about, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I kind of admire the ability because the thing about these, the thing about these uh, moth shows is that people keep going back to them. The uh, the same speakers. Yeah, the same right, speakers, okay. the same authors. And um, the reason I know about The Moth, actually, is because uh, th- at the time when I first started listening to podcasts, I believe Neil Gaiman, who is a, a comic writer of some note, as I'm, as I'm sure you know, Steve, he told a story at one of them, and that's why I, I started listening to them. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these people are writers, as I like to think I am, but they keep going back, and, and I don't get it, because 
to have a story that is sufficiently long enough that is also true mm. that is also vaguely meaningful but but actually entertaining as well um it isn't just a story about some hard lessons you learned from some woman who done you wrong um it amazes me that you must kind of feel like the first time you go i don't understand how the first time someone went there and told the story they wouldn't be like well okay I've got to use my best story. This will be great. And then once they've done that, what do they go back with? Do they convince themselves that they've got another best story? Or, I mean, would you find a less good story for the first time you go there in case you screw it up? You don't want to waste your really good story? I don't know. Hmm. It's very, I don't know, it's very difficult for me to come up with anything, really, when uh, I haven't seen or heard anything to do with the moth before now. But if um, if we were going to take this llama story on, for example... Yeah. Okay, fine, right. So it's, um, it's a little kid, he's excited, he's at the zoo, maybe it's his first trip, and um, the llama enclosure's there, and they're curious-looking creatures, and there's potential in the story, right? Mm. It's just down to the way the story is going to be told because you could tell the story and wrap it up with going, and that's why I don't like llamas. And that's sort of like, there we go. That's a piece of me. And I've told the story and that's where we are. Um, I've got to, I've got to assume that, okay, so writers specifically, if they, if, if they're published writers and stuff, maybe they're, maybe they're, you know, living a full and exciting life. So, and, and they hang around with lots of other writers and, and creative people who have full and exciting lives. So perhaps they do get up to more stuff than the rest of us, but there must also be smaller details in their lives, smaller beats, if you like, mm-hmm. that they're just able to spin into a story. Sure. I get the feeling there's probably nothing stopping you from taking that llama story and, 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 and spinning that into something which would please an audience and not just your wife or your, or your in-laws who, you know, are enjoying having a chuckle at your expense because they know you. But mm. you could do that to a room full of strangers if you told it in the right way. I guess that requires either, either the storyteller's instinct or a little bit of work. Oh, I don't know about the work, though. Mm. But do you, do you see where I'm coming from? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like something that isn't worth telling to people, but it's just about how it's being told. And it may well be that there's more emotion that needs to be plunged into this and more, you know, to put us in the mind of the little Nick and the anticipation he had of a day out at the zoo and the animals that he wanted to see and that the llama was a curious-looking animal and he really wanted to get up close and figure out how the hell this thing was put together. You know, because I'm looking at a llama right now looking at it on the National Geographic site. Now, even though it's a relative of a camel and I can sort of see the relationship to the camel, the way you were explaining it was quite interesting. It's got, like, the face of a sheep and um, two uh, sort of back ends of an ostrich slammed together <laughs> um, and then scruffy, long-haired horse fur or something all over it. It's a yeah. very weird-looking thing. And, yeah, I mean, if you hadn't seen one before, and, yeah, okay, lions, tigers, giraffes, yeah, I've seen those in all the books, and then all of a sudden, bam, there's a llama, and you've never seen that before, you're going you're gonna to want to check that out. So you could spill a lot of wonder into that part of the story before you even get to the point where the thing assaults you. Because it's almost almost a story about broken anticipation, and it just basically comes down to the uh, I kind of build it up to be something really exciting, and it ended up being a spiteful little git. Yeah, it's lost innocence. Yeah. Which is a potent dynamic tool in a story, lost innocence. The problem is with that, 
it would for the, uh, the thing I'd be concerned about, and this is the thing to to broaden the scope of this a little bit to the stories that other people have just in your in your day to day life, the stories that people share. I don't actually remember how the little Nick felt. I really the only the this this is one memory that kind of most of my childhood I just really don't remember at all. Um, I don't remember how I felt about the adults in my life, particularly until I was in my teens. Hmm. My teen life. This is possibly uh, going to be a surprise to a lot of people, um, but my teen life is where it, it really feels. That's that's where the story of my life and all of the personality problems and stuff I've got really come in. I don't have memories of adults and grandparents and stuff like that. The way other people, I don't know what's, I don't know in in stories like that what's noteworthy. And so if I if I told all of that extra stuff, if I added all of that extra stuff to the story about the llama, it, the story would become even less familiar. If if you see what I mean, right? I don't know because in in the past we've talked about when we've talked about uh, summer childhoods, summer childhoods, childhood summers. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the English language works, isn't it? it would, they would have been childhood summers. Um, when we talked about childhood summers, it, it seems, I, I think certainly you and uh, most of the other people you talk to have quite vibrant memories of those periods of their life. But literally the bits I remember are the bits where there was pain, uh, normally meted out by hideous alien creatures. I had pain meted out by a bike once. Did you? Yeah, that's that's. Um, I don't know whether it was a summer holiday or whether it was a half term thing, but it was it was in some school holiday, and uh, I was out with uh, two or three friends of mine. We were all out on our mountain bikes, you know, and mountain bikes sort of thing. I don't know what we were doing. You know, you just cycle around. Maybe you'd stop off at a corner shop and get a panda pop, but you know, you'd just be out on your bikes doing whatever, just enjoying the relative freedom, I guess, not being near parents. We were goofing around in like this um, a small little close. I got my bike really, really close to the curb, and I was going quite slowly as well. There was no way I was going to be able to kind of hop the bike onto the the, the grass verge or anything. So I kind of co- I'm, I'm coming right up to this um, right up to this curb, and I sort of jerk the handlebars to the left to try and just move the bike like away from the curb. But basically, it was too little, too late. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the tumble, but I took a tumble. The tumble, however, is insignificant because the impact was much worse. The handlebar had basically turned 90 degrees to the left. Mm. So the left side of the handlebar was facing right towards me, or more specifically, my nuts. So I got the, the, the blunt end of my bike handlebars punching me straight into the testicles Oh my goodness, that's not good. And then I was curled up on the ground for a good five minutes, just in agony, absolute agony. I mean, I hadn't broken anything. I'm going to assume everything's okay down there. Um, Everything appears to be operational. All looks right, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, In in that it looks hideous and you don't understand why anybody would ever want to go anywhere near it. That's how it's supposed to look, though, wouldn't it? I see. The thing that sticks out with me is obviously the fact that it was a ridiculous thing and I got bike handlebars right into my balls. I was then curled up on the grass verge, clasping my groin with my hands, sort of writhing around in pain, tears streaming down my face. My friends are sort of like, they're concerned as, as they would be, oh, you're right, or whatever. So there wasn't like immediate laughter. 
Because I guess they all sort of felt it. That's one area where people don't really yeah. uh, mess around. Men and boys kind of understand that, that you don't joke about that there's stuff. A, there's a sort of a shared sympathy. There's a shared sort of pain that's going on. Um, the thing that really sticks out in my mind when I think about it now is there I am, writhing around, tears down my face. Oh, my God, I've hurt myself. This really hurts. And, it, and, and me not knowing really what I've done. It feels mm. like pain, and it feels like it's never felt before. Like, have I done damage? Am I bleeding internally? What's going on? So you just don't know. Obviously, later on, it's not a big deal at all. But at the time, you're freaking out. But there were at least two or three people, members of the public, that walked past and just, just ignored it. Walk on by. They just, yeah, they just walked on by. And that's the thing that really sticks out to me. Is that people just like walked on by. Here's a kid that's hurt himself. Okay, admittedly, no blood, no guts, no broken bones. So perhaps you know there there isn't an emergency. But just the fact they just walked on, they showed no concern whatsoever. This is this is not the sort of feel good story I'm used to hearing on on the moth. But well, yeah, I don't know if I have any of those. I'm sure pretty much the moth only gets the the feel good stuff anyway because uh, it's American. They're not so interested in this sort of. Um, pessimistic sardonic sort of british take i guess the reasons why we've withdrawn i guess that was a very early introduction on the universe's indifference i guess if in later life i had often been attacked by i mean maybe i have maybe i have often been attacked by animals but it wasn't even noteworthy because the one formative moment that I learned everything I needed to from happened right at the beginning. All of the other times were just, that was just reinforcement of the message the world was sending me. See, I've just invented a, invented a lifetime where I'm constantly being attacked by uh, exotic farm animals. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that timeline doesn't exist. I'm almost convinced of this. And the, the more I think about this, the more the more I realise that it is really unfair of me to neurotically dominate any conversation I have around a pub table or whatever with friends because I don't really have stories. I just have a list of grievances with the, with the world. So yeah, so I mean, in in a in a, tr- in a traditional situation where you might be able to share a personal story or, or or an anecdote that sort of has a nice tidy beginning middle and an end maybe a lesson learned or something to take away from it you know you can you can sort of inject those can't you and um and add color <clears throat> i guess unless the the pub conversation is around um do you remember the time when there were these things in a, in a playground you haven't got an opportunity to put that thing in so how would you tell that at any other time? You've got it there. You could tell it, but what does it add? What does it contribute? That's. I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's, and and this is this is why I really um, I really struggle because the way it works uh, more often for me, and I'm sure you've been on the receiving end of this, and I'm sure other people have as well. Is I don't tend to remember these things at the pertinent moments. What happens is I remember that this is a thing that happened to me once, uh, while other people are talking about something else. And then I will wait until there's a point, oh, God, this is an awful behavior, and I'm just realizing it's something I do. I will wait until a point where, you know, it's my opportunity or my turn to talk. And because I really desperately want to tell people about this thing that happens, because we aren't already talking about this swing, weird swing thing, I have to explain that these are things that exist. I have to explain that finding these weird apparatus that you've never seen before is a thing that happens. Mm. I have to explain the thought process that led me quite alongside of the conversation that everyone else was having to remembering this thing. And it's not even that I think it's particularly important. It's like the fact that it has occurred to me 
I have to get it out of my system, otherwise people won't understand that this is a thing that I just thought is this the only input I really have to a conversation about I don't know the economy or whatever is um I have never heard a song by Lady Gaga or something something like that. That was something that just occurred to me and I felt you needed to know. It's not really a story, it's just a fact. I wonder if we look menacing. I mean, not while I was clutching my nuts and crying my eyes out, but, like, I wonder <laughs> if 11, 12, 13-year-old lads on bikes was um, was intimidating back then. When would this have been? Would this have been the early 90s? Yes. Yes. I would have had a rally lizard. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't one of the Tomahawk family, was it? No. There was the Tomahawk, the Chopper, and the... I think it's actually the Chopper family, not Tomahawk family. No, it wasn't the rally like that. lizard. I've never heard of a rally the, lizard. The uh, the rally lizard was a mountain bike, and it was heavy. It seemed to be heavier than all my friends' mountain bikes. They could lift these things up with no problem. I'm like, oh, I can't carry this one very far at all. It's really heavy. It had a sort of almost a sickly uh, yellowy minty green frame. Nice and um, a picture of a lizard on the on the frame as well. Curiously. Do you think that the picture of the lizard came first or they decided, well, we've called it the lizard, we have to put a picture of a lizard on it to create a brand identity? I think, that, I think the name came first. I mean, if they really knew what they were doing, and I don't know whether um, frame painting technology was really up to speed at the time, it probably is now, but they, they, they could have gone with, like, scales. It could have been just a scaly frame all the way over, and that would have been pretty cool. But instead it was just this sort of sickly pale green. That would be one pimped-out bike. Just talking about it has made me think that my bike, the bike that I had, was quite idiosyncratic. Because do you remember the chopper bikes? Yeah. I think this is why I've never worked out how to go up a curb on, on a bike. I just never learned how to do it. Because I was too small, I believe I mentioned it, to have a chopper. But the, the smaller version of it, I think, was called a tomahawk. But these bikes, I think I used to think it was really cool. Because um, they, they're kind of... They are... They evoke what one imagines a Hells Angels motorbike is like. You sit back in them, or it feels like you sit back in them rather than sitting on top of them the yeah. way you do on a normal bike. Um, it must have looked bloody ridiculous, though, to be honest. And again, that's not really... If I could remember, I loved the bike. If I could remember where I got it from and what eventually happened to it, that might be a story. But really all I've got is I once had a bike... It was a tomahawk. <laughs> I liked it. It looked like this. So again, it's 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 sort of not enough for its own story. It's not enough to swing a conversation onto a different subject, but it's good enough if it was already being talked about. If people are talking about bikes already, yeah, yeah no, that's true. It, it possibly um, extends, this whole thing extends itself to how I feel about stories in general. I, we've mentioned Neil Gaiman already, and mm. I know that some people um, can become furious about stories and conversations about the nature of stories and stuff like that, but I find it fascinating. But one thing that I know is frustrating for a lot of people is ambiguity in stories or stories that have... Uh, lots of things that happen in them and you're not really sure what the significance of them is but it all kind of goes towards a, a, an overarching feeling 
it sounds like I'm trying to start a conversation about Lost. I'm really not trying to start a conversation. This is just how I feel about most things. This is how I felt about Twin Peaks and stuff like that. And I think what it is is I, I was just thinking of a thing that happened to me when I was younger. You started this by talking about a violent thing that happened to you. Maybe I started this by talking about a violent thing that happened to me when I was a kid. I think it started with you. But the one main time, I think I've been beaten up maybe four times. And most of these aren't really stories. They are, um, I'm walking down the street with some friends and there are some drunk people going in the other direction and one of them decides... Uh, as he's on his way to the pub and feeling a bit aggro anyway, he might as well just punch the littlest one in in the group that's coming, sort of thing. So they're not really fights. I've been beaten up a couple of times, a few times. Okay. And so that those aren't really those aren't really stories. But the the one time I can really remember, and again, I'm not going to go into detail with it. It happened on a cross country run. The basics of the story were a, a time in school when the cross country run was the most torturous thing that could possibly happen. Oh yes, to you that they. It's funny because in the sixth form, I think in the, later on in the sixth form, we actually did the cross country as an elective. I don't know if we've talked about it before, but to begin with, it was this thing that you did every six months and it was horrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, while miles away from where any teachers could see us, um, I got uh, uh, some kids who had decided they didn't like me, singled me and a friend out and, and beat me up. That in itself isn't a story. If I was going to try and make it a story, well, I could talk about how they singled us out. That isn't really a resonant story either. It's just a longer description of a horrible thing that happened once. Um, To really get into the meat of why that thing happened, what it actually meant, really, you have to go forward to talking about how the teachers dealt with it or didn't deal with it, how my parents dealt with it, didn't deal with it, how it made me feel the rest of the time I was at school, um, how potentially it made the guy who beat me up feel. Um, not that I know or give a shit about him. He was a douche. Um, but you also have to go back so far to try and find any meaning or any reasons for this thing that happened, that it stops becoming a story and starts becoming something that you're either going to have to make it a mini-series or you might as well just call it a day, frankly. You know, it has to go back to the beginning of the school year when you all got put in the same place together hmm. or to the point where this kid was maybe some big deal at his previous school but then he went to secondary school and he was the littlest kid and I was the only kid littler than him or or any number of different things. You know, yeah. I mean? it isn't really a story... And then it becomes an epic, and it's an epic with no simple answers or anything to it either, um, no real closure to it or, or anything like that. It, it feels to me that's how I see the world unfolding around me. That's how I see my life unfolding most of the time. There'll be these cool, enclosed, self-contained things that very rarely happen, like five times in a lifetime. But life, the way I see it, kind of lacks that resolution. And the stories I enjoy and the stories I enjoy telling they're either a very brief slice of life. Yeah. There's this kid. He comes off his bike. That's awful enough. But as if it wasn't uh, as if it wasn't bad enough, he almost gets his uh, young testes severed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the way society is, people just walk on by. But maybe it's because they're scared. That's not really a story. It's a vignette. But I like those sorts of stories. Sure. But again, it's it's not something that's going to stand up to the um, the rigor of the moth. No. Can you remember any of the stories from the moth? Anything that stuck out to you? Oh, well, I mean, those are those people's, uh, those are those people's stories, so it'd be difficult. But there was, most, of them, most of them are stories of quite dignified stories of loss or, or whatever. Um, 
people who had a, a troubled relationship with a, a parent or a child but then something happens uh, at the last possible point where you might think it would and uh, there are either stories like that like human uh, mundane stories told with wit and um, self-awareness that have some sort of resolution to them or as you said earlier on they're, they're stories about adventures people went on that they inadvertently ended up on while in Morocco looking for well, one I specifically remember although I don't remember the names of the the I don't remember the name of the person telling the story and I don't yeah. remember the name of the writer that he and his sister and the beautiful young man that both of them were besotted with um, were with in this, in this exotic country that I've decided is Morocco. <laughs> but I mean, I'm sort of sitting there listening to that going, well, this is a good story, but of course you're going to have good stories happening to you if you're off on adventures looking well, for writers yeah, exactly. on a whim. It's easy to have stories happen to you then or, or um, one of my favourite stories. Actually, that, that is my one of my favourite sorts of stories that kind of do have a sort of resolution but have an ambiguous start and an ambiguous end was about a guy who had pretty much given up on uh, he'd I think he'd lost a friend um, tra in tragic circumstances and he'd pretty much given up on himself as well and he ends up going on this signing on to work on this boat trip that was like fishing uh, boat or something that or, or trawler that was quite dangerous and you know he was it's the sort of job you don't do if you're yeah. really thinking that hard about the future and they ended up getting shipwrecked because of course they did <laughs> i'm applying a certain amount of determin determinism it's not like this guy suddenly found himself at this event and thought oh my god i've got a uh, i've got to think of something that, that's happened to me oh wait there was that time i was on the trawler and we got shipwrecked and this traumatic but ultimately funny and heartwarming thing happened because these things happened they have ended up telling stories about them that's that's normally the way around it actually goes but that isn't the way i see it when i'm listening to them um but yeah that was a good story in which a man ended up drinking his own urine and finding out he didn't actually need to have done that <laughs> moments later <laughs> It's probably a little bit better the way he told it than I just did, to be fair. <laughs> I guess even though these are true stories, there is the touch of the fantastic about them. Mm. Because these are, I guess in most cases, exceptional people doing exceptional things. Yeah, I think there's that. There's still something a, a, a touch bohemian about it, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in this particular case, there's the fulfilling the storyteller tradition that goes on, which I love the idea of. I love the idea of sitting around with friends and just chatting. And when you do get to do that, it, it is satisfying. Although most of the time it's just obscure or intricate jokes and nonsense and stuff that's mm. going on. And, and there is something really alluring and... To someone who likes stories so much, which sounds ridiculous because I think everyone likes stories, but someone who likes the idea of being able to tell them better than I do, it feels like there's a rich tradition of it that is part of what it is to be a human with an imagination. But ultimately, there is a level at which uh, it is. it did start uh, probably from a bunch of New York hipsters getting together to tell each other stories. You know what I mean? There, there's, I guess... There, there is this level at which almost any time we, as people with jobs um, living in a relatively comfortable society, try and do something to recapture older traditions that feel like somehow we've lost, we are going to end up being a, a little bit bohemian and a little bit pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just don't think there's any way we can really avoid it. But um, there is nothing pretentious about 
doing a podcast with your friend and and having people listen to it. This isn't even just about stories, though. This is a little bit about jokes, too. I, I love a good joke, uh, but I can't tell them really very well, and I can't remember them particularly well. When I hear one and I recognise it, I love it. But the things we find funny when, when you and I are talking or when... Um, we're talking to uh, I'm making assumptions about about you here uh, about your experience here but um, on the other podcast that I do and when I'm hanging out with my wife or when we've got friends over or any of these things it's not like we're sharing jokes we're laughing at people being funny there are things that they do that we find funny because we know them within the context of knowing them but you laugh as much as you do when you hear a really good joke. And we understand the joke when we hear it. Yeah. But most of the time, when we're sitting around laughing with each other, we're not actually formulating jokes. We're just making stupid comments and, and having these, these momentary flashes where someone says something funny, but it's, it's like one sentence, but it's literally only funny in that context. Mm, yeah. In the context of that bigger conversation that you've been having for several hours or whatever. Um, and I find that I find the difference between those two things really fascinating and, and really odd because the reaction is the same. It's just a group of people who are familiar with each other just riffing on what's happening at the time. And there's no way of being able to distill of being able to kind of distill that and, and, and present it to an audience that doesn't know them and to expect the same result, to expect this, uh, the, the same effect. Because it's so reliant on the context of people that are there and, and the reason that they're there and the things that are being said, it's um, very private. It, it, can, it can be particularly peculiar, though, when it occurs to you again in a, in a different time and place. One of the things I really hate is that whole, oh, you had to be there. I am very unlikely to say that mm. because a lot of the time when people have used that, it has felt to me a little bit like it's a tool of exclusion more than anything else. Yes, you're not good enough for this. Yeah, and, and so that's why I, I don't really like it. And I will always, if I'm finding something hilarious that I'm remembering, I will always try and include people. Mm. But ultimately, you quite often end up finding yourself, after explaining this story to them, that you realise is literally only funny to you because you're in that setting. After you've gone to the effort of trying to explain the people that were there, the situation... When they look at you with that blank look on their face, like you, and by extension, all of the people who are there with you, are clearly demented, you find yourself having to say, oh, I guess you had to be there anyway. But it's with resignation instead of with that little, like, secretive joy that people say at the <laughs> beginning. So, yeah, I'll always try and explain those moments, and they never really go over particularly well. One thing, uh, one thing that makes this almost worse is this may be different for you and and other people who's um the most the most important person in their life their partner um, or their closest friends are all socializing in the same space as them online but one place that's really good for those sorts of weird only funny in a very specific context you really had to be there and to have seen what was happening in that space at that time uh, to find it funny places or forms is twitter Twitter is one of those places where someone will say something that occurred to them as amusing and is literally only amusing within the confluence of all of these different factors, yeah. like familiarity, the, the situation of what's going on. 
I imagine it can be quite perplexing for my wife, who isn't interested in Twitter, isn't interested in those spaces at all. Because quite often, the funniest conversation I have had, or the funniest thing I have seen in any given day, is something that exists in that context. And I want to share it with her, because for her not to know it, not to know I experienced it, feels weird. Sure, yeah. You know, if you can't share it with anybody else, you'd hope to be able to share it with them. Yeah, but there is literally no way to make that happen. Exactly. Which is very peculiar. Especially, I mean, especially if it's an exchange on Twitter that you had with someone that, you know, your wife doesn't know. And it's based on, these are always good. It's based on kind of the Twitter issue, the lefty Twitter issue du jour. Mm. You know, some, oh God, some columnist has upset another columnist again. And then this little section of Twitter went nuts over it. And then someone made a comment on the fact that people were going nuts on it. And this person responded. And then this funny thing happened. Well, by the time you've done all of that setup, your wife's probably gone to sleep. Oh, for sure. She isn't a remotely jealous person, but any situation where I am asked to describe someone and the only way to really describe them is, oh, this, this really funny... Uh, smart, attractive woman <laughs> said this thing. Whoops. Do you have a a quota of red flags that you can use in one of those conversations before, you know, game over? Red flags suggest they make her more uncomfortable than she ends up making me. I think (laughs) the point of her reaction is normally to tease or wind me up about it. When someone tells you, uh, as a response to something like that, God... If you like them so much, why don't you just have sex with them? It's um, which is a fairly standard response in this house. <laughs> um, it, it's it's difficult to really take it as a particularly serious attack, but it is perplexing because uh, quite often you, you didn't really realise that was an option that was available. So yeah, I never really know how to react when it says that. Oh, uh, am I allowed to? I, I didn't realise. A lot of the things I find interesting or noteworthy really are just these blips, these moments that fit in into this wider context or, or, or can reflect on this wider context. And it's interesting because it means that if I ever get round to, I can write really nice Nice is probably the wrong word. It's the most depressing way to describe a piece of art, to be honest. You've damned yourself with faint praise there. God, I can write. I can write really nice. I can <laughs> all write stories. So, what kind of stuff do you write? Is it is it fiction, Nick? Oh yeah, yeah. I write. I write nice fiction. <laughs> I know I can write uh, within the context of people who know the culture that I know or have experienced culture that I've experienced, and. Yeah spend time in roughly the same sorts of places as I do, um, have had roughly the same sort of life experiences, I can write really meaty little vignettes for them or really vague, sweeping things that they can draw their own conclusions from. But I'm never going to be able to write... I'm probably never going to be able to write something that has a broader appeal, that has the uh, the required beginning, middle and end, where things actually make some sort of narrative sense. I had um, a slight set to with a comic writer online last year about a film i won't name the film but it was it was a it was a a a film that that split audiences between people who hated it and people who you know thought it was all right well yeah well okay that could be that's quite vague that could be a whole lot of films it could be any one of them yeah several um uh, one of the things this writer said in damning this film or this story Mm. was that in fiction, the real world 
is supposed to lack resolution and lack... No, the real world lacks resolution and lacks closure, but in fiction, things are supposed to make sense. And I have a huge problem with that. I have such a huge problem with that assertion, which is why a lot of the stories I like are the stories that, that drive other people completely mental. Because... Because they're waiting for a punchline that isn't coming. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So with the, with the llama story, for example, the, the outcome is, and that's why I'm not really fond of llamas. Yeah. But that's, that might not necessarily be satisfying for other people because what they really want to hear is an incident you had 20 years later, again with a llama, that either extended that trauma or somehow resolved the issue. But it's, it's not there. It's like they're waiting for a third act and it's not coming. I can offer something which will probably show how how problematic the idea of that closure that happens much later on um, is, in that the only other llama-related thing that I can think of as having happened later on is I actually really like the Disney film The Emperor's New Groove that features in it prominently a talking llama <laughs> who, who doesn't terrify or upset me in a way that I would expect. That is it. Um, this horrible thing happened way back when I have known myself since then as someone who loathes llamas and then the next time I saw one in a prominent narrative mm. catching me unawares because it doesn't say anywhere on the uh, in the promo material for that film it's called The Emperor's New Groove there is no hint that there is a llama in that film from the title it should have been called Llama Trigger Warning as far as I'm concerned <laughs> but actually what I realised was yeah I don't really mind llamas that much as long as they're cartoons and they're hanging out with John Goodman. Even just saying that, I feel like I've spoiled the story. It had a certain amount of punch before. Not only is that resolution that takes away, is that a, yeah. additional information that, that takes away the drama of the original, it's not really particularly satisfying. It's not like I met one, one saved me from drowning when I was yep. a grown-up or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I... Uh, or you married one. Oh, I saw one get knocked down and I uh, I held it uh, as its it, its final breath left its body and realised, hey, aren't we all just trying to... Trying <laughs> get to along. <laughs> get along until we die in this mixed-up crazy world. <laughs> we all choke the same way <laughs> at the end. So this llama, um, I guess it was so used to seeing humans that it must have seen something different in you. This yeah. smaller than average human with a dark brown curly barnet seemed to be very different from everything else, and perhaps it just wanted a closer look. Yeah, I think that's probably what it was. I think that's definitely what it was. I was a fascinating child. <laughs> Either that or it saw in me a kindred spirit somehow. <laughs> it looked into my it's eyes. It's like, hey, you're on the wrong side of the fence, buddy. Come and join yeah. us. We're having a wicked time over here. I'm just trying to find out how long llamas live. Because it might still be around, I don't know, maybe I could look it up. Maybe it's on Facebook. Turtles live a really long time, so... Um, but whales don't, apparently. Someone uh, someone on uh, Twitter recently said, uh, something to think about, there are whales that have been around for longer than uh, since before Moby Dick was written. And for uh, about 20 minutes, that was absolute fact. And then I told my wife it, and she said, that, that doesn't sound right, Nick, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, thanks to a little bit of uh, Google foo, uh, llamas, the lifespan of a llama, anything between 15 and 30 years. All oh, right, okay, so that shithead's dead by yeah, now. Yeah, and also considering that animals in, in captivity tend to, I don't know, now I'm just clutching at straws, but I'm, I'm going to guess that 
they probably die of boredom. So they probably die a little bit earlier. If if you're lucky, uh, maybe maybe a child or, or a grandchild, you could um, you could track them down through um, Genes Reunited and um, retell the story to them. And maybe the story in Llama circles is now almost mythological in status. And uh, you know they could relate something to you. This actually, you know, the third act could well be. I I traced the family line of that particular llama and spoke to one of its descendants. And we had a jolly nice time recalling that event so long ago over uh, carrot cake. <laughs> uh, I'd probably learn that they'd uh, the rest of the family in the pack. That afterwards they all said they all said to him, "Now that was out of order, mate. You shouldn't have done that." That's see that would probably make me feel a little better knowing that the llama did uh, get suitably admonished, maybe even shunned. Maybe. Did you ever go back to Whipsnade after that? I don't think so. To be honest, I, I didn't. It could have, have taken a lot. its life the very next day. It could have felt it really bad about it, not not been able to continue. Oh no! Because if that was the final act, if I found that out, that'd be like the. And that's why humans are better than animals. <laughs> well, I, was, I was thinking more that the uh, deeper truth that I would learn in that is that there's no satisfaction in seeing even your worst enemies brought low in that way. I'd just be like, the, any, any chance of resolution has been robbed from me <laughs> by that selfish, suicidal llama bastard. <laughs> This, this conversation has been really cathartic, though, because normally uh, I, I, I had thought that I couldn't talk this much about llamas without kind of getting the fear a little bit, but it seems to be going okay so far. We've pretty much made a whole podcast out of it, so... <laughs> <laughs> I made a snippy, off-the-cuff and desperately inappropriate comment in the comic shop about... James Hewlett said something about mums, and I just, without even thinking, made a stupid comment about, well, that's, dude, you know my mum's dead, or something like that. I was just really, really harsh, and then I realised that, like, all of the people I know in Earshot would not find even a, a jokey comment about a dead parent remotely funny. It's the least appropriate group of people I could have possible, not the, the least, you all could have been there, I suppose, couldn't you? I would have laughed. I know you would have. <laughs> um, when you realised that I was supposed to feel uncomfortable but was kind of doggedly refusing to feel uncomfortable. Because there was some dude there I didn't even know who decided to say, huh, that is such an obvious thing to say that it has borders on cliché. I'd never met the guy before. Oh, one of them. When I was upstairs uh, being served by James, I went up to him and said, dude, I'm really, I'm really sorry about what I said earlier on. I'm really sorry if I said something that was a cliché. <laughs> <laughs> and James just kind of rolled his eyes and went, yeah, I didn't think it was. It was just... And I'm pretty sure the guy who kind of said, oh, my God, that's so obvious, it was bordering on the point of cliché, was in himself a walking stereotype. Oh, definitely. He's probably one of those guys who his parents both got killed down an alleyway when he was young, and he hasn't even got a, a superhero lifestyle to show for it. No. Why is he so serious? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>